Earlier this year, there was an op-ed article published in the LA Times that I came across in which columnist Sarah Banks described her general experience of grief and loss during the pandemic. And as others have sought to do over the past year and a half or so, the primary aim of the article was to map Banks's experience in the pandemic along the lines of the popular Kubler-Ross therapeutic recovery model, otherwise known as the five stages of grief. But what caught my attention in Banks's article was not so much her use of the Kubler-Ross model to help understand the grief that she and others have experienced. Rather, it was the order with which she described her recovery process. You see, according to the five stages model, whereas one would expect the process to begin with denial, then proceed through the various stages toward acceptance, for Banks, the fifth and ongoing stage was actually anger. Listen to what she says. Our long-running battle with the pandemic has spawned such ambient anger a new word has been coined to describe the mix of frustration, fear, and resentment we feel. We're pangry these days, and that simmering rage is showing up in unhealthy ways, including a stunning jump in homicides, a surge of domestic violence reports, and an endless stream of viral videos of public brawls. There's so much to be angry about, the loss of lives, the fracturing of families, the uneven burdens we bear. Now, perhaps the sentiment of this article or even just this quote is something you might relate to. Even as we've begun recently to pull our way through what's hopefully the worst of it, for some of us, maybe our sense of hope that we might be finally getting through it has been strangely muted by the kind of ambient anger that Banks describes. And the losses you've had to endure over so many months have actually left you less accepting and more angry, and you don't quite know why. Or for others of us, maybe the anger we felt throughout the pandemic, whether it's our irritability at home, our rage on the road, our online vitriol against those we disagree with, these things maybe have been more or less just an amplification of the anger we've lived with long before the pandemic even began. Well, wherever you might find yourself this morning, friend, I believe God's word can speak into your anger. As we'll see, the psalm we're about to read, a controversial and difficult one, it invites us to confront our anger, to listen to what our anger says about us, and to pray through it. And just to forewarn you, this psalm minces no words in the way it speaks into our anger. In fact, it's considered by many scholars to be among the more provocative and theologically challenging texts in the Psalter. But my prayer is that as we come alongside the psalmist this morning in his own anger, we'll find that even those words of his that are hardest to stomach will help us to see our own anger for what it is and to find the hope and help we need as we struggle through it. So without further delay, let's open up our Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 137. And it'll also be posted in the overhead so you can follow along either way. Let's sit before God's word as he speaks to us from Psalm 137. Hear now the reading of God's word. By the waters of Babylon, 
There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is a, this is a difficult text to hear from your mouth, yet it is your word, and we tremble before it. I tremble before it. And all of us together as your people ask for your help. We are an angry people. And we need you to soften our hardened hearts. To shine the light and the character of Jesus, the gentle, meek, and lowly Savior, into our darkness. And to make us like him. Please do what only you can do through your word, by your spirit. And may it all be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we jump in in earnest, just two words of caution I wanted to offer us. As we walk through this prayer, please keep in mind that we're intentionally narrowing our focus to what this psalm in particular has to teach us about anger. From the outset, we should know that the kind of anger in view here is what theologians would call righteous anger. Anger we feel on account of sin and injustice, but anger that is not necessarily sinful in itself. There's far more that could be said about anger, whether righteous or unrighteous, than we're able to get into this morning alone. And Psalm 137 is but one of many pieces of the Bible's teaching on the topic. Not only that, but you'll remember that our goal throughout this sermon series has been not just to tackle different topics in general that we'll face throughout the Christian life, but specifically to grow in how we pray through life, whether it be through guilt or doubt or distractions or perhaps, yes, anger. But if there are questions you have about anger that Psalm 137 doesn't necessarily address as you come away from worship today, I encourage you, please, reach out to either me or Pastor Billy or any of the elders, and we'd love to sit down with you over coffee or to at least point you in the direction of some resources that we found helpful in our own understanding of the biblical teaching on anger. But similarly, we want to be cautious not to read this prayer as a kind of panacea for every anger problem out there. For more than a few of us, our history with anger is a complex and deeply sensitive one, whether it involves others' anger towards us or our own towards others. And I want you to know, friend, 
If you're feeling that already as we've read the text and we're beginning to get into what it means for us, nowhere does Scripture offer a simplistic, multi-step formula for how to deal with the many ways in which anger has shaped our lives. And especially if you've suffered any form of abuse and are struggling with anger as part of your trauma from it, know, friend, that God's way of healing that pain is always holistic, realistic, and rehumanizing. No passage of Scripture, including Psalm 137, was ever meant to be used as a way to minimize the complexity and depth of your suffering, even if it's in the name of theological precision or spiritual authority. Nonetheless, as I hope we'll discover together, there are some important truths about anger that I believe God offers us in this psalm. And I believe that they're necessary for us as part of our healing, however the Spirit chooses to bring them to bear on our own stories. So let's get into it. How does the psalm that we just read, how does Psalm 137 teach us to pray through anger? We're going to look at three points. Admit your anger, submit your anger, and sing the Lord's psalm. How does the psalm teach us to pray through our anger? First, it teaches us to admit our anger. Now, just some historical background about what's going on here, because it might seem just like a strange, a strange account. The events described here are set during the Babylonian invasion and exile that followed it, that happened during the 6th century B.C., and they're preserved for us in this account that the psalmist gives as an eyewitness of those events. And the literary genre he uses to recount these events is what's known as imprecatory lament. That's a fancy way of saying, basically, that the psalm is a prayer of lament over the suffering and injustice that he and his fellow Israelites endured during the Babylonian invasion and captivity, so much so that he cries out in anger for God to bring judgment upon those responsible for it. And as we try to wrap our minds around just the sheer inhumanity and barbarity of these events, each detail, you notice, seems to cascade upon the next. You see, not only did the Babylonians desecrate and destroy the holy city, but as verse 9 refers to, included in their military campaign was the practice, which was unfortunately not so uncommon among pagan nations at the time where invading soldiers would storm homes and they would snatch up young children out of these homes and dash them against a wall or a rock or the ground to their death. But as if, as if that wasn't gruesome and horrific enough, in verse 7 we see that while all this is going on and Jerusalem is being pillaged and besieged and sacked, what do you know? Here are the neighboring Edomites who have taken it upon themselves to just stand by and cheer the Babylonians on in their atrocities. And finally, in the opening verses, we see that it wasn't even enough for the Babylonians to have conquered God's people. Even on the other side of their victory, they still sought to crush their spirit, taunting and goading the worship musicians to entertain them with songs about how Jerusalem was supposed to be a beacon of light and salvation to the world. And as He's reflecting back on all these injustices. Notice how the psalmist responds. Not with resignation or pseudo-spiritual stoicism, but with anger. Some of you might know about 
the recent expose of the Nexium cult and its founder and leader, Keith Raniere. As I was watching a documentary that detailed some of the steps that led to Keith Raniere and his cohorts being brought to justice, and uh, incidentally, he's now, uh, he was sentenced and is now serving a, a, an 120-year sentence in jail. And it, the, the list of offenses that he was found guilty of just runs so long, but include human trafficking and racketeering. Yet, so many lives along the way were, were affected and crushed by this man and his uh, so-called work to help people. And I was struck as I was watching this documentary and just kind of taking it all in, not only by the appalling nature of the crimes that he committed, but also by the thought that it's so impossible for me to imagine that there could be any other sane response when you're aware of these things happening than anger. How anger would just seem to be the most appropriate response for anyone who realizes that these kinds of things can happen to people, especially people at their most vulnerable and helpless. And yet it's at this point that some of us start getting maybe a little bit uneasy with the psalmist. Sure, it's understandable in light of all he's been through that the psalmist would be tempted to get angry about it. But all this talk about divine retribution, all this imprecation, is it really okay? Some have even questioned whether this text belongs in the canon of Scripture. And I assure you, I'm not a glutton for punishment by selecting this text to go through today. Hopefully we'll see why in a moment. But when it comes to anger management, we typically think about people being one of two types, don't we? You're either the type that ventilates your anger or the type that internalizes it. You either blow up or clam up. You lash out or you check out. And while these distinctions can be useful in describing us along general lines of temperament and personality, there's actually yet another way to think about our anger responses that I believe could help us understand a little bit better what the psalmist is getting at here. And that would be to think in terms of either revealing or concealing our anger. And this is especially helpful when we consider the way the Bible as a whole speaks of anger. After all, what is anger anyway? How does the Bible define it? Well, there are many ways we could go about answering that, but one definition in particular that I find uh, captures it well when you look at the Bible's teaching as a whole is the one that Christian counselor Robert Jones offers in his book, Uprooting Anger. And here's how he defines it. Anger is the whole person's active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Let me repeat that. Anger is the whole person's active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. In other words, anger is not just an emotion, but something we experience in our whole person, which includes our desires, our will, our beliefs, and our behavior, as well as our emotions. Anger is also an active response, which means it's better understood as something we do rather than something we have, such as a fluid or an energy or a force. And this whole person's active response takes the form of a negative moral judgment. 
meaning that our anger is always, on some level, a condemnation of something or someone we're standing in moral opposition to. So, for example, my commitment to a social or or political cause only crosses over into anger when I, on some level, have begun to experience others' opposition or even simply their ignorance of or indifference to that cause as something for which they need to be punished in some way. Whether that punishment takes a revealed form, like hostile speech, or a concealed one, like the silent treatment, or an internal judgment of their character. But lastly, by saying that our anger is directed against a perceived evil, we recognize with the scriptures that it's quite possible for us to be angry about something we perceive to be evil when it's actually not. And in fact, this likelihood, along with the sheer difficulty of maintaining godliness in the heat of our anger, would seem to make sense of why the vast majority of biblical instructions on anger speak to our need for for us to avoid getting angry to begin with. But when, like the psalmist, we're confronted with real injustice and evil in the world and in our lives, the feelings of anger that result, that should at least result, still call upon us to respond in some way. And for those of us who are more prone to conceal those feelings of anger, the temptation tends to be twofold. Let me explain. On the one hand, if you're more of the type to conceal or internalize or stuff down or stew on your anger rather than ventilate it or reveal it, we could look at the injustice in front of us and decide to relativize it. And so we'll say things like, sure, these people are being treated unfairly, but hey, Those other people way back when had it much worse, didn't they? Or if we're more theologically savvy, we might say, sure, the way he spoke to me was belittling and dismissive, but hey, we're all sinners, aren't we? The other way we might be tempted to conceal our anger in the face of injustice is by sterilizing it. In other words, instead of allowing ourselves to feel angry at the injustice, we convince ourselves that a more scientific or dispassionate response is somehow more dignified. But dear friends, what both of these forms of concealing anger amount to in the end is denial. Because we're so uncomfortable with the feeling of anger. And as I mentioned earlier, sometimes understandably so, given the destructive effect that unrighteous anger has had on our lives. But because of that discomfort and fear, we have a hard time imagining that God would ever want us to bring our anger out of concealment. And yet, that's exactly what the psalmist does. He admits his anger to God. Now, we'll unpack verses 7 to 9 in a few moments under our next point. But for now, in the most basic sense, what we can glean from these verses is God's permission. In fact, his divine invitation for us to come clean about our anger, to refuse to stuff it down and stew on it as it gradually toxifies our heart. If you watched the first Avengers movie, and if you're a Marvel fan, you, know, you might know already where I'm going with this, uh, you'll recall that epic scene kind of towards the end of the movie where the team is all together and they're in the heat of battle and they're looking out into the distance as an enemy ship is coming in hot and it's headed straight for them. 
And Captain America turns to Bruce Banner, who is Bruce Banner at that time, and he says, Dr. Banner, now might be a really good time for you to get angry. To which Banner responds with what might be the most biblically insightful quote to ever come out of a Marvel comic book character's mouth. That's my secret, Cap. I'm always angry. And then proceeds to turn green and transform into the Hulk in an instant and stop the enemy ship dead in its tracks with one furious punch. But what's so insightful about Banner's admission is that while the Hulk might be the most obvious embodiment of rage and anger, what he actually is is an exaggerated projection of the same angry person that the mild-mannered Banner always was deep down. And this psalm calls even the most Banner-like among us, as docile or zen as you might be, to admit that we're angry. So how do we pray through our anger? First, we admit our anger, but then what? In calling us to admit that we're angry, is the Bible then telling us to just give it full vent? Is that the answer? Well, there's a recent trend in some evangelical circles where Christians are taught that the only authentic kinds of prayers are ones in which we express every emotion we feel with total abandon, including anger. Not only that, when it comes to anger in particular, some would posit that because all anger is ultimately against a sovereign God, Christian prayers should include full expressions of anger against him, all with the assurance that, quote, God can handle it. Friends, that could not be further from what we see happening in this psalm. See, while the first thing we need to do in praying through our anger is to admit that we are angry, what that doesn't mean is for us to then cut loose and fly off the handle with our anger, even if God is strong enough to take it. No, what the psalmist does next is submit his anger to God. So how do we pray through our anger? First, we admit that we're angry. Second, we submit our anger. How do we do this? Well, in two ways, and they're similar to one another, but very different. First, we submit our anger to God by remembering God in our anger. We remember God in our anger. You might have noticed earlier but when you read the first six verses of this psalm, it seems as if the psalmist's main preoccupation, even as he's being tormented by his captors, is with this whole deal about remembering Jerusalem. If you or someone you love has ever suffered a stroke or any kind of traumatic brain injury, or perhaps you've uh, had close contact with someone in your life who has suffered a condition like dementia or Alzheimer's, you might know that as bad as the physiological challenges are in dealing with these conditions, sometimes even the more heartbreaking and frustrating part about dealing with them is how to deal with losing one's memory and how integral and important remembering is to our basic functioning as human beings. And it might seem counterintuitive, but this act of remembrance is so sacred and precious to the psalmist that for him to just sing one of the songs of Zion as a form of comedic entertainment for his captors would be tantamount to forgetting Jerusalem altogether. 
And so he and his fellow musicians decide to stay angry, and they hang up their lyres in protest. But what is it about Jerusalem and its songs that makes the psalmist so passionate about honoring its memory? Is it simply some nostalgic attachment to his homeland? Or maybe as a musician, is his act of protest just his way of not selling out his art? No, it's far more than that. See, for the Israelites in exile, being away from Jerusalem meant being away from the temple, away from the place that God had ordained for his people to meet personally with him in worship. And as verse 4 gets at, it's the fact that it's the Lord's song they're being, to ask, they're being asked to sing that makes their captors' request so odious to them. See, however many other reasons the psalmist has to be angry about his situation, he submits his anger to God by remembering him in the midst of it, by remembering that all injustice and oppression is ultimately a cosmic offense against God and that no one understands what it's like to be angry about injustice more than him. What's more, notice how in verse 7, as the psalmist's anger and lament reaches a kind of fever pitch, where does it lead him to? You see, if praying through anger were just about ventilating or getting it off our chest, you might expect the psalmist at this point to either indulge his utter hatred for his oppressors or vow to take vengeance on them personally. And that's what you see in a lot of ancient Near Eastern texts that are similar but so different from the Bible. But instead, he turns to address God directly to lay his anger before the only one with the divine prerogative to judge. Which brings us to the second way we submit our anger to God. We do it by remembering God in our anger, but second, we do it by asking God to remember. As one commentator points out, when you kind of pan out and view the flow of Psalm 137 in its entirety, what you find is that it's actually structured as a courtroom trial where the psalmist is arguing his case as both prosecutor and chief witness. You'll see that after his opening statements, he swears himself in in verses 5 and 6 as a witness. Then in the final verses, he both presents the evidence for his case and proposes a sentence. And there are three things about this that I hope might help us better understand what's going on in these difficult verses, verses 8 and 9. First is that the psalmist is appealing to God as the true judge. God is the true judge. He's refusing to take vengeance into his own hands and instead submitting his anger to God and his perfect justice. Secondly, by asking God to remember, in verse 7, the psalmist isn't so much reminding God of something as he's petitioning him to take action. And so in other parts of the Bible where this same Hebrew word appears, to remember when it refers to God doesn't mean, doesn't refer to some kind of cognitive recollection on God's part. It's not as if God forgets and he needs to remember. When God says things like, I will remember your sins no more, what that's getting at is that God will no longer take action or hold, you against, hold your sins against you. By appealing to God as judge, and petitioning him to act justly, the psalmist presents his imprecation in verses 8 and 9, but he doesn't do it as some kind of hot-headed, vindictive tirade. 
but as an act of faith in God's just character. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Beloved, isn't that the truth we need most when we've been treated unjustly and our anger threatens to consume us? Submitting your anger to God in faith doesn't guarantee that you won't be angry anymore, but it's the gracious recourse that God has provided for us in our time of need so that we can face the injustices in our life and not be consumed by anger over them. And that brings us to our last point, which is that we pray through our anger, lastly, by singing the Lord's song. Now, that might seem like a contradiction, right? I mean, isn't that exactly the opposite of what this psalm says? Doesn't it say right there in verse 4 that we have no business singing the Lord's song until God brings judgment on his enemies? But he has. You see, as much hope as the psalmist had in God's perfect justice, he was only able to, he was only able to catch a shadowy glimpse of how that justice would be met. In other words, as much as Psalm 137 invites us to admit our anger at injustice and sin and to submit that anger to God, trusting in his righteous judgment, we can't stop there. For us who live on this side of the cross of Christ, we have the fuller picture, don't we? Not only of God's perfect justice, but of his perfect mercy and grace. In Jesus, we see how God fulfills this psalm with all of its hopes and dreams for justice and shalom in the world. But it's not in the way that the psalmist or even any of us could have ever imagined. If you have your Bible, you can flip over to Luke chapter 19. There are just a few verses in there that speak to this. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. Let me read this for us. Jesus, during his triumphal entry, when he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And listen to what he says here. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do you see what's happening here, friends? The same judgment that the psalmist prayed over Babylon in Psalm 137, Jesus is predicting will fall upon Jerusalem here. Yet he does so not with cruel taunting like the Edomites, but through tear-filled eyes on account of their rejection of him. Jerusalem was never meant to be God's final dwelling place with his people. And by the time Jesus uttered this lament, it too had already gone the way of Babylon and been laid bare in God's eyes. And even as he, even as Jesus, the little one of God, is about to go to the cross where he would be dashed against the rock of God's wrath against our sin, still there are those who in their unrighteous anger choose to reject his sacrifice. Yet, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to who? 
Him who judges justly. Dear friend, the ultimate hope of Psalm 137, our ultimate hope, is not in the restoration of earthly justice in an earthly city, but in God's renewal of all things in heaven and earth on the final day, that day in which all injustices ever perpetrated against his people will be met with absolute justice. And if these things aren't hidden from your eyes today, if you're able to look at the injustice of the cross and see there God's just mercy punishing Jesus in your place and reaching out to you in gentle compassion. That means that no amount of injustice you endure in this life can take away your song for good. Even in those times when your anger rages so loudly that you can barely hear the tune, Christ has placed his spirit in us to groan the Lord's song on our behalf, as Paul talks about in Romans. And even though we too live as exiles in a foreign land until Christ returns, unlike the psalmist, because of Christ, we're yet able to sing even through our times of anger and grief, knowing that we're that much closer to the heavenly Zion where our true home awaits. And until we get there, friends, let's ever look to Christ, the one who gave his life up for angry people like me, and like you, so that we can know his joy. Joy that comes from earthly secur- no earthly security, no earthly promises, but the heavenly inheritance that he's purchased for us through his blood. So let's go to him now in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. And um, as we've tried to take as deep a dive as we could into waters that seem perilous, that seem deep. And um, as some of us have come today with uh, even present anger in our hearts that has uh, distracted us from hearing your voice, I pray that your spirit will bring home what you would have him bring home to our hearts to comfort us and to assure us that we need look no further than Jesus to see that you have fulfilled the hope and the vision of this psalm. That we don't have to look to exact our own vengeance. We don't have to look to quell and placate our own anger upon other people. You are the just and true judge. And in your just mercy, you will leave no end loose. You will leave no stone unturned you will have absolute judgment in your perfect time and in your perfect way. But for the time being, it is for us to know the hope of the gospel and to spread it as far and as wide as we can to fellow angry sufferers, those who need to know that there is a way of escape from judgment and that you are ready to give it if we would just believe. So help us believe afresh today. Help us to be your ambassadors, your emissaries to an angry world so that we can shine the light of the gospel to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.